you're listening to Open Mic Friday Law and Gospel. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and we'll attempt to answer any questions that you might have. How do you get a hold of me? You phone in the St. Louis area. You simply can dial 821-0850. Or even in St. Louis or anywhere in North America, one 800 730 2727. You might want to talk about what we have spoken about this week with the Bible study, the hymn. Uh, yesterday with uh, Wes Reimnitz, we talked about a reconciliation and the difference between following a process to make you look good and using God's method of reconciling. Uh, today, what we're going to be uh, taking a look at a little bit is a email that I received from an individual. You've heard me, I'm sure, say this before, that early in my ministry, I was criticized by a member of my congregation. He actually was a professor at the seminary, Dr. Martin Charlemagne, and he kept telling me that I did very good law and gospel in the sermon, but then I often ended the sermon with French or salad endings. And of course, I wasn't quite sure what he was talking about until he explained it, that I would say at the end of a sermon, after talking about what Jesus has done for us, I would say, therefore, may we, that's the French, or let us, that's the salad ending. And he said, you put me right back under the law, that from there on, I always end a sermon on a high note where we have an unconditional promise from God, uh, regardless of our response to it. Now, I got an email from an individual who was talking about when he was in a congregation at one time, at the end of the sermon, they sang a hymn which had the phrase in it, I have decided to follow Jesus. And he was wondering, well, doesn't that run into the problem that I have? He says, I hear the concern for the use of the phrases, let us and may we. Is there a difference in what I have heard you express and these examples from this hymn or from Scripture? Well, it just so happens that I finished listening to the entire Bible on CD. I think there were 60 CDs as I travel to the various congregations. I put on about 1,000 miles a week, and it gives me a great opportunity. I finished that, and so I was looking for something else to listen to. And there are a number of books that people speak. And the one that I have that I began listening to is one of my favorite books. It's by Martin Luther, Bondage of the Will, and it's spoken on 10 CDs. Well, I had about a three and a half hour trip to a congregation, and I only got through two of the CDs. So I've got a, a ways to go. And I had taken this course uh, years ago uh, with Dr. Richard Klan, tremendous professor, great insights. And I remember a lot about the bondage of the will that he was saying, but I had kind of forgotten about Luther's introduction 
He talks about Erasmus being a very eloquent man. But then he kind of moves into what the Apostle Paul says, that I did not preach the gospel with eloquence, uh, lest the power of the gospel fail. And, And you would think, well, why wouldn't you want to preach with eloquence uh, to help people understand it better? But the word eloquence there, and the New American Standard Bible even has a translation like this, means kind of a babble where you're just saying things to impress people, and they're really impressed with what you're saying because it is in their self-interest. We find this particularly involved in political realms where a politician will say, if I get elected, boy, you're not going to have to pay for your student loans. We're going to take care of all of your medical costs. Social Security will not run out. And people gravitate to that because they gravitate to anything where there is a promise that's going to be in their self-interest. Now, they think those people are eloquent, but they really aren't. And interestingly, Erasmus' point was that we have a free will in order to make a choice for God. We can choose, and those who go to hell are those who did not make that choice. But Luther, well, he takes over 400 pages to explain why Erasmus, though he might be eloquent, is not very wise. A lot of what he says is really babble. It doesn't make any sense. And Luther goes through a lot of the Bible verses that Erasmus attempted to use to show that we have free will in spiritual matters. And he points out that here's the problem Erasmus has, and he himself admits it. He says, what we need to understand is the will of man contributes something to our salvation, but the mercy of God also contributes something. And that's where the problem is. How much of the mercy of God is necessary? How much is the will of man necessary in order to be saved? Rasmus thought that quite a bit of the will of man is necessary to make a proper choice. Luther explains that only the mercy of God is able to save you. Nothing in your will. Why? Because... If you are not a Christian, you are an unbeliever. And there's no way that the will of an unbeliever wants to have anything to do with the true God. I often explain that the reason for that isn't so much because they don't like hearing the gospel about the forgiveness of sins. What they hate hearing is the law. You are such a bad sinner that, guess what? It took God to come and die for you to take those sins away. So Luther's point is pretty simple. If you're saved, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, all by himself. He doesn't have to depend on you making a choice to be saved. So here's how I would answer this question. Can a Christian ever say... I've decided to follow Jesus. And the answer to that is yes, if you have a proper understanding of what that means. 
If you say, somebody asks you, I understand you're saved. Oh, yes, I decided to follow Jesus. You're now making your decision the foundation of your salvation. And that is wrong because it was God's decision to bring you into the home of the elect, not your decision. You couldn't make that decision because you are or were an unbeliever. However, if, for example, you're a Christian and you're at school with your friends and they say, hey, we got some marijuana, and this is before it was illegal, and they say, why don't you come and smoke it with us? And you say, no, I'm not going to do that. And then they ask you, why aren't you going to do that? And you say, well, I've decided to follow Jesus. You see, that would be an appropriate statement in that context because when it comes for a Christian to make a decision about doing sin or not doing sin, by rejecting the sin, in a sense you're saying, I've decided to follow Jesus. And we Christians do that uh, a lot. You may be tempted, for example, in certain areas, but you don't fall into temptation. Uh, There's a lot of things, and drugs is one of them, that anytime I was tempted by somebody I knew to take drugs, I just rejected it. I had no desire at all to do that. Whereas if I'm driving a car and somebody cuts me off and the person beside me says, "Uh, go ahead of him, speed up, that's a temptation. And sometimes, especially when I was younger, uh, I would do that. I mean, I was really quite ridiculous when I drove when I was young. I ended up getting four or five tickets and never told my parents about it until one day I came home and it just so happened my uncle was my insurance salesman and he had to give some additional insurance because where I was going to school and found out I had these tickets. Well, I wasn't very happy that weekend about hearing that. So there I had not decided to follow Jesus. And that's why none of us always follow Jesus, even as Christians. Uh, We end up following him through repentance as we look at our sin and confess it, taking all the responsibility for it and not putting it on someone else. So, great question from this individual from Texas who's simply asking Can you ever say, I've decided to follow Jesus with a proper understanding? And I hope I have been able to explain that. Now, some of you may have a question on that or another question. The number to phone is 1-800-730-2727. Now, for some reason, and maybe it's because we were off a bit last week because of the snow problems, I've gotten uh, even more emails. And here I have uh, one that seems to be coming around a bit about who would be a Christian and ever would want to vote for President Trump because he swears 
His views on women sometimes have been not Christian and so forth. And so they want help in knowing who they should vote for. Well, I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. That's a decision you need to make. But I can be here to tell you why so many Christians will be voting for Trump's re-election, even though they would disagree with maybe some of his lifestyle choices, his uh, language, and, and so forth. Why is that? I, I actually got this idea from Issues Etc. They had a wonderful conversation with an individual who had taken a look into that because this person, it appeared, had not really been for Trump originally, but now is for Trump. And the reason was pretty simple. It's not that this person wanted to vote for Trump because he was such a, a fine Christian and a great example to everyone, but because the other candidate was even worse in the area of particularly morality, in teaching morality in the sense of they had no problem with gay marriage, the other candidate would have no problem with abortion, etc. Remember, President Trump was the first president to actually be at the pro-life walk in Washington and speak to the people. So when you're taking a look at who to vote for, a lot of times you'll never find Jesus on the ballot. I mean, we'd all vote for him, but no one is like Jesus. We all fall short. So it depends where are you thinking of falling short. And when I talk to people who are going to vote for President Trump again, well, they, they give a number of reasons and the main thing it comes down to is it's not so much the importance of Trump being reelected, although he does have some policies in the financial area and the business area that are helping businesses. Others feel that he's not helping businesses. That's a decision you need to make. But the, the main thing that always comes about is not the election so much of the president but who's going to be on the Supreme Court? So when you have a people, as that actress once said, I'm really glad I had free choice to abort my children because that gave me the opportunity to win this award in actress. I was able to spend more time doing that than having to bring up children. I mean, she actually said that. And you want that person, that kind of an individual elected as president of the United States, I guarantee you that her choice for a Supreme Court justice would once again be like those who voted Roe v. Wade and said, oh, yeah, uh, a mother has the right to murder her child uh, before it is born and even after it is born in, in the thinking of some people today. So a lot of elections are, are not based so much on 
well, this is the person I think is really, really good. But this is the person I think is really not that bad in comparison to the alternative. And therefore, some people are going to put in a Democrat and others are going to put in a Republican or an Independent, uh, depending on their views are of the individual. And so I don't consider people in the state, in the government, to be equal to Jesus Christ. You'll never find anybody. And it's really interesting if you go back through the presidents in the United States, how many times can you see them practicing an immorality that was found out that and was illegal in comparison to Trump where nothing so far has been found to be contrary to the law. People just really don't like his kind of an attitude. And so that's important to kind of keep in mind. So from our point of view, if you vote for him or don't vote for him, that's a private thing between you and God. Okay, I think we're ready to go to the phone lines right now, and we're going to have the opportunity to uh, speak with Jim. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Pastor. Hi. Uh, um, I've got a, a question. How did the Holy Spirit's uh, work in action in the Old Testament um, differ from the New Testament when Jesus said he would send his comforter? Uh, there's a few instances in the Old Testament, like the Spirit of God, uh, or the Spirit stayed with David uh, all all his days after he was anointed. Um, could you uh, yes. just explain? I sure would be glad to explain uh, from a biblical point of view what we're talking about. Number one. Sure, I'll hang up and listen. Oh, okay. Thank you so much for calling. Uh, the first point I want to make is that nobody comes to faith apart from the Holy Spirit, either during the time of the Old Testament books or the New Testament books. In other words, if you come to faith, that is because the Holy Spirit gave you a trust in the promises of God. And that occurs for every believer in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, what's this Jesus talking about sending the Holy Spirit? Well, something different happened in the New Testament, and it's called the day of Pentecost. While the Holy Spirit does bring faith to an individual, the Pentecost experience, you received what's called the gift of the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit now dwells within you in such a way that there are certain differences between a Christian in the New Testament and a believer in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament does God say that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In contrast to the New Testament, for those who have been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
you are now considered, even your body, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit dwells. Now, there are also certain practices that the church does that makes a difference if you're an Old Testament believer or a New Testament believer. In the early church, the Lord's Supper was available. But the early church only would provide the whole the Lord's Supper to those who had been confirmed and had been baptized. In fact, uh, on Easter Eve, in some situations, there were a number of baptisms, and then the people who had been instructed properly could come to faith and understand what the Lord's Supper was, and on Easter morning would then take the Lord's Supper for the first time. So the church has always taught that the Lord's Supper should not be given to someone who has not been baptized. Why? Because they have not received the gift of the Holy Spirit where their body has become the temple of God. And therefore, the body and blood of Jesus Christ can enter through your mouth at the Lord's Supper because you have now received the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is more than the Holy Spirit just bringing you to faith. It's actually the Holy Spirit within you. Uh, One of the best examples to remember is Jesus' own baptism, where the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, descended from heaven and alighted upon Jesus. And many scholars believe that the Holy Spirit entered into Jesus. And therefore, we have a different situation than before his own baptism. And it's similar to ours. That the church would not commune people who had not been baptized in the Trinitarian formula is something to remember that though the Holy Spirit, as I said, is the only one that can bring anybody to faith, whether it's Old Testament like David, etc., the Holy Spirit comes to you in a special way at Pentecost where he now dwells within you And one of the significant differences is that your body has become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Paul uses that argument when he's talking to Christians who decided to have certain relationships with others when they are not married. And he says that they're really committing adultery with their bodies and therefore This is contrary to the Holy Spirit because your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's a great question. A lot of people don't understand how significant baptism at Pentecost is. Even John the baptizer, when he's baptizing people and they're coming to faith because they repent of their sins and trust in the Messiah Even he says, the one who's coming after me is far greater because he will baptize you 
with the Holy Spirit. And he's talking to people who have received faith through the Holy Spirit. I hope that answers your question. Be with us as we continue our Epiphany study on Monday's Law and Gospel. God bless. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.